You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. So welcome. Good to have you here. Um, I'm Mark Steiner. I was asked to come and introduce Joshua Davis, which I'm happy to do. I think he's one of our rising, budding historians who has a lot to say. He's a really good teacher and an excellent writer. If you haven't read the book yet, From Headshops to Whole Foods, I recommend it highly. Um, And it's about our community. And one of the things he'll be delineating here tonight uh, is about the, the whole idea of alternative institutions that have been created in the city that we never think about. And that goes back to Frederick Douglass and Isaac Myers, who created a workers' co-op and one of the most successful businesses in the city at that time uh, when they couldn't get jobs for black folks, but said, let's start our own business. That happened on the docks uh, where there were caulkers working in what was then like the dry docks. And it just goes all the way on. And we've talked about this before. A couple of things I'll highlight that were necessarily in the book, but Joshua knows about this city in the last 60 years, 50 years, 40 years, created a lot of institutions, cooperative institutions, in Waverly, where I was a community organizer for a long time, uh, back in the uh, dark ages of the early 1970s. Um, we created a Waverly People's Food Co-op. It was a grocery store, a real grocery store, where people came in and bought their goods uh, for, for next to nothing. We, we collectively owned it. We started the People's Free Garage here in Baltimore. Uh, that became later Brentwood Auto because we trained him in, in doing auto mechanics, and he ended up taking over the shop and turning it into a private business. Um, and then there was a People's Free Health Clinic that happened here in Baltimore, which many of us were there at the beginning uh, of that, um, with the Black Panthers and, and white organizers and communities in Waverly. Together started uh, the People's Free Health Clinic that was manned by doctors, nurses, in the evenings, and we would be the volunteer staff taking down medical histories and helping to organize the place. These things have a history, and a very deep and important history. Um, and there are other things like Drum and Spear in Washington, D.C., which was a collectively owned black bookstore, which lasted for a long time. There was a center of culture and politics in that city for a long time, for a decade. So, and, and, and Josh puts a lot of this and more in his books, in this book, that kind of really... Uh, evokes for us what the power of these cooperative businesses are about, how they define the city, how they can yet define the city. Uh, and so I'm not here to speak tonight. I'm just here to bring this to your attention, as, as he asked me to do, and to introduce Dr. Joshua Davis, professor of history at the University of Baltimore, uh, and a colleague there as well. And Joshua, it's all yours. Okay. Thanks, Mark. That was really nice. Um, let me thank everyone for coming out tonight, kind of quickly after class, after work. Uh, some of my students are here. Thank you for coming. Uh, friends, people who just are coming to hear uh, the book and hear about it, I wanted to thank Tracy for setting this whole thing up and all the work that went into getting this together. And just, you know, it's great that the Pratt is doing free talks and that we still have a very, very, very strong library in the city that does free events, right? Because free events are very hard to come by and just free places that you can go into if you want to learn about things, talk about things without having to pay anything. It's, it's really a public service, and we have to always kind of remember to support our, our library. Is it loud enough? Yeah? Better? Okay. Okay. Maybe I'll... Can I do this? Yeah. See Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to talk for a bit. I don't want to talk for too long and then have Q&A and discussion afterwards, so uh, try not to leave me hanging in, in the question part. But uh, I wanted to start by talking about Baltimore a bit, and um, here's a picture of my book, and here's a picture of Paul Coates in 1972 here in Baltimore. He was the defense captain of the local chapter of the Black Panther Party. He wanted to expand the party's community work. He had just left the party. And what he wanted to do was to bring organizing into prisons in Maryland. 
he got together with local activists. They started a short-lived campaign. Uh, the idea was to bring books into state prisons. It was called the George Jackson Prison Project, right? I'm sure most of you have heard of Soledad Brother, that book by George Jackson. The project didn't last too long, but it became the foundation for a black power bookstore that Paul Coates started called The Black Book. It was founded in 1972. Years later, I interviewed him, and he said, you know, it never occurred to me this was a business. I thought we were engaged in a political movement. And the store struggled. It had several locations that moved around town, but it closed in 1978. However, it became the foundation for Black Classic Press, a publishing company that Coates started, which is still going today, 40 years later. Um, it was rec- He and the press were recently featured in Baltimore Magazine, and they've specialized in black authored works on history and literature and politics, one of the leading black presses in the country. And as you may know, Paul Coates also is the father of ta Coates, who really is arguably today the best-known, probably the best-known commentator, I think, on race in America, at least one of the very best-known. And also, as uh, students always want to remind me, he wrote the screenplay for Black Panther. And uh, that was kind of one thing that like wowed a student recently, none of the other stuff. But uh, <laughs> anyways, and he's writing also the screenplay for um, Fanta- um, yeah, Captain America. Right, right, right. Help from the audience, thank you. Okay, all right. Uh, going to jump now to another part of Baltimore. It's 1972. It's basically the same year. We're going up to, uh, I guess, essentially Charles Village, 25th Street, Two women, Kalita Reed and Casey Zernick, started a company called Diana Press. It was a print shop, right, before we could just print from computer printers. And uh, what they wanted to do was create a shop that they said would free women entirely from male printing establishments. And Reed and Zernick, they got together with a few other women um, who were active in feminist circles, and really not only just in feminism, but they called themselves lesbian feminists. They said, we're a separate movement. We're different from mainstream feminism. They pulled their money together. They, had, they were getting about $100 a month for their work. Uh, they were living together, and they didn't worry a whole lot about making money, really just kind of covering their costs. Within a few years, they grew from a print shop to a publishing press, to a publishing company, they started publishing works by feminists, by lesbians. Most famously, they published one of the early books by Rita Mae Brown, who went on to be a major, major writer. And uh, Diana Press said, we are committed to, remind, to remaining financially viable and independent, but we are also committed to producing books that speak to the real needs of women, not to male-assessed market potential. And they were, uh, if you know where the CVS on Charles and 25th is, they were basically right next to that. I think the building they were in has been torn down. But yeah, 12 West 25th Street. Okay, now we're going to jump to Holland's Market. There was a business there, Pratt Street Conspiracy, a so-called head shop that sold clothing, rolling papers, incense, pipes to local hippies and any other curious community members who were brave enough to enter. The people working there were long-haired, dirty teenagers, They had psychedelic murals in the business that kind of looked like outtakes from Yellow Submarine. It was also a nonprofit cooperative. It was actually a community effort. Teenagers were working there. The idea of the store was to provide a shopping option to residents of uh, Holland's Market in Union Square, residents who might not have cars, who might not always want to go downtown, but who also had pretty poor shopping options in their community. And uh, what was interesting was Pratt Street Conspiracy was funded primarily by the Community Action Agency. That was an organization. It was established through the OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity. This is part of LBJ's War on Poverty. It was headed by civil rights veteran Linwood Ivey. And then you had VISTA volunteers, VISTA employees actually, who were helping to advise them. And they had a Title I grant, uh, a federal grant that was funding it administered by none other than the University of Baltimore, my employer. So it was really a community organization kind of war on poverty effort, this unlikely little head shop uh, that was selling incense and peace symbols and all kinds of other stuff. So 
I just kind of told you about three different businesses in the city, in different parts of the city. They're selling different products for different reasons, but they have a critical commonality. It's that they were at odds with conventional notions of capitalism. They were businesses, but they were businesses that were touting social and political change as their primary objective. They did want to make money. They did want to keep the lights on, but profit was not their primary objective. And they were part of a larger national movement of thousands of these businesses all over the country. That's what my book's about. And uh, I called them activist entrepreneurs. They essentially came out of social movements in the 60s and 70s. Um, they were small shops. They're politically informed. They're struggling often. Um, they were trying to, I think, offer an alternative to, we could think of it as like the madman consumer culture that was depicted, I think, so brilliantly on that TV show. They saw that post-war 50s, 60s consumer culture as homogenous, discriminatory. I mean, they even used terms like spiritually bankrupt. They wanted to create an alternative, right? They wanted to create something different than what was popping up in chain stores, in shopping malls, in shopping centers. They were looking at multinational corporations who were involved in the Vietnam War, things like that. Okay. Three big things they wanted to change about American business the products, the places, and the processes. So in terms of products, they wanted to get goods out in the marketplace that promoted their, their movement's values. They wanted to get goods that promoted multiculturalism. They wanted to get um, goods that they thought could better America, especially in terms of advancing social, racial, gender equality. In terms of the places, they really wanted their businesses to be what they called free spaces. We might think of them as safe spaces today. They were supposed to be a small store with four walls where activists could meet without being harassed, where also all kinds of marginalized peoples could meet without being harassed, where queer people could meet without being harassed, where uh, civil rights activists, black power activists, where you know, men with long hair. I mean, we can look back at hippies of the era and kind of, I think a lot of people look back at hippies as kind of like, mm, harmless burnouts, basically. That's not the way police looked at them. Police looked at them as dangerous anti-war radicals. And it was really hard to get a job if you were a hippie, essentially. So I said products, I said places. The final thing is processes. Basically, these businesses wanted to democratize American business. They wanted to set up things like collectives, profit sharing, cooperative ownership. They wanted to basically do away with the traditional single or dual proprietorship and to think about business as a vehicle for democracy but as itself an institution that could be run democratically and they did that to varying degrees of success so again products places and processes that was kind of what they were trying to change so i wanted to get into a little bit of the takeaways one was that I really wanted this book to kind of make us rethink what social movements look like. I mean, I think we associate protest movements with picketing, with sit-ins, with uh, leafleting, with petitions, and all of those things are definitely kind of the main things that social movements do. But I think these businesses really represent a forgotten part of the movements, especially movements in that era. And then kind of the flip of that is rethinking what businesses can be, right? I think when we think about businesses in America, we, I think, our cultural generally thinks of them as strictly profit-driven, as traditionally owned by one or two people, as, um, I guess, financial enterprises and not as political vehicles. And I don't think these are most businesses what I'm talking about. I recognize that they're definitely the anomaly, but it's part of kind of rethinking about the range of options that businesses in our country have. Um, and I will say, you know, there's a much longer history of this in America, even in Baltimore. So um, I saw, yeah, Professor Nicole King here from UNBC, and she and I and Professor Kate Drabinsky are working on a book, co-editing editing a book on essays about Baltimore, uh, which hopefully maybe we could even do a talk here now that I think about it. Uh, but I bring it up because I'm doing an essay in there about these businesses in Baltimore going all the way back to the 1830s. And so if you work way back in time in Baltimore, you can find communists who started businesses. You can find suffragists who started pop-up shops and fundraisers. You can find um, um, people like Isaac Myers, who Mark Steiner mentioned, who basically set up a 
black union slash co-op for shipbuilding and for ship caulking. You can go all the way back to the 1820s and find abolitionists who are working to abolish slavery who open a store on Calvert Street. Basically, it's a free trade store. They called it a free produce store. The idea was we're not going to sell anything sold by enslaved people or made by enslaved people. Right? So that's almost 200-year history in this city. And uh, here's a quick picture of Isaac Myers and the not very uh, pithily titled Chesapeake Marine Railway and Dry Dock Company. I think I got that right. That's down in Fels, and you can go see the museum, the Myers-Douglas Museum they have down there. So uh, these businesses, they weren't without their detractors. Um, looking at the 60s and 70s, a lot of them were harassed by private citizens. Hippie head shops, you know, they were involved with the anti-war movement and the drug legalization movement. All of these stores were involved with all kinds of movements. And basically they were just seen as fronts often. So head shops had bricks thrown through their windows. They got spray painted. They had police coming by confiscating goods illegally. Um, feminist businesses were vandalized. They had anonymous attacks. Natu even like natural food stores, like businesses selling tofu and organic produce were investigated by the FDA. They had FDA agents coming into businesses and taking inventory and investigating it. But the business that, at least in my research, that was the most harassed were uh, black-owned bookstores. And I, um, I mentioned that, I wrote about that recently in a piece for the Atlantic, the FBI's war on black-owned bookstores. And basically in 1968, in the fall, J. Edgar Hoover, FBI director, within the context of COINTELPRO, right, the anti-subversion counterintelligence program that was focused on communists and then increasingly on black power, Hoover issues a memo to all his agents in fall of 68. It says, okay, look out for these African-style bookstores. That's what he calls them, African-type bookstores. They're popping up around the country. They are anti-white hate-filled, hate-disseminating uh, businesses, and anyone who has one in their jurisdiction needs to take note of them, needs to do surveillance on them, needs to cultivate people within the community, i.e. African-Americans, to spy on these businesses. And so a business like Drum and Spear down in D.C., who Mark mentioned, you know, they're started by SNCC veterans in the Civil Rights Movement. Their FBI file is at least 500 pages. Or Paul Coates, he has an FBI file that refers just to the bookstore, right? Just to the fact that this store exists. It's looking at who he's calling, who are his customers, those kind of things. All right. So a uh, quick word on the title from Head Shops to Whole Foods. A lot of people say, why do you have Whole Foods in there? They're not activists at all. They're this and that. They're terrible people. Um, but what I, the reason why I did it is, first of all, Whole Foods grew very much out of the environmental movement, the hippie movement in the 70s. A lot of people don't know that. They came out of Austin, Texas, the two founders, John Mackey and Renee Lawson. They met in what was basically like an off-campus vegetarian co-op dorm at UT Austin. Uh, that's kind of like where their love began. And the kind of big thing they kind of agreed about was, all right, we need to start a business to change America. We're going to call it Safer Way, right? Not Safeway, Safer Way. And I think in that title, there's a very clear critique of chain stores, of supermarkets, of what they saw as the environmental dangers, the dangers for workers at these stores. That's where Whole Foods starts. In the 80s, they're still doing some profit sharing, but by the late 80s, early 90s, John Mackey, for example, really gets immersed in libertarian economics. He kind of goes from left to center to right, and the company becomes very focused on expanding and it becomes focused on doing something that like health food stores never did before, which is gobble up their competitors, right? That wasn't a thing that organic food stores did. And they start doing it in Texas and then in North Carolina. Um, up here in the Atlantic, they buy fresh fields and they just they kind of start building an empire. And so you can clearly see that they become primarily fixated on profits by the 90s. So... From head shops to Whole Foods in one way is talking about the range of businesses I'm addressing, but it's also talking about a trajectory, a, check, a trajectory from very politically focused collective businesses towards basically, I would say, uh, the descendants of those businesses today, Whole Foods Market being the most prominent, biggest, and most popular one. And I'll get back to that 
in a second. The really big legacy of the businesses I looked at in the 60s and 70s was a language of liberation and a language of social change through business. They didn't invent that, but they really, really popularized it. And I think that's what they've given to a whole range of businesses today. There are some who I think are very genuine and sincere and community-focused. They're the, the real social enterprises, the worker-owned co-ops, um, places like Red Endless, places like Everyone's Place, places like Taharka Brothers Ice Cream, who are setting up structures to, for making business democratic and setting up ways to spread political ideas in the marketplace. But on the other hand... If you look at places like Silicon Valley and you look at tech companies and you look at the way in which a lot of them, I mean, Google's founding slogan, don't be evil, and just all the energy they have put into trying to cast their work as socially benevolent, they really took a lot of that language from the people in my book and have cut away a lot of the politics. I'm not going to say all tech companies, but I think a lot of them have adopted that political social language without adopting and using the real tactics of political change. And that's like the big legacy of these businesses, unfortunately. It's not the only legacy, because like I said, there are a number of these co-ops that are still going, new ones that have popped up in the last 10 or 15 years. But I think um, the idea of a social enterprise, for example, there have been wonderful social enterprise leaders like Muhammad Yunus, who won a Nobel Peace Prize. On the other hand, if you go to the International Social Enterprise Forum, that they have every year, Walmart's invited, Citibank's invited, like basically any company that can pitch some of their philanthropy as political work can get into that discussion. Okay, so um, basically, about ready to wrap up and then let you kind of heckle me with questions. But businesses in general are hard to keep alive. Small businesses are always very difficult to keep going. Activist businesses even more so. It's hard to find people who are willing to commit themselves to a political business, who are willing to maybe forego a great living, who are willing to live two to three or four or five to an apartment or a house, who are willing to put so many other things in life on hold. Um, and I think that's part of why these businesses still exist, but especially part of the problem is that since the 60s and 70s, these movements have fluctuated but in a lot of the cities where they opened, real estate prices have gone up, 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 up. So it was much easier to run a head shop in Manhattan in the 70s. It was much easier to have a feminist bookstore in Oakland in the 80s than it is today. And so a lot of these businesses have closed. Another thing that's happened is the Internet has in some ways been both good and bad for, I think, traditional political organizing and just... It used to be that if you wanted to discover all kinds of radical writings, you had to go to one of these bookstores to find them. You couldn't get them from the Internet, and a typical consumer wouldn't have a catalog from the publisher. And so they were real gateways to kind of understanding, learning, to meeting kind of politically like-minded people, or also just kind of places for recruiting people, right? For recruiting people to movements. And I think a lot of that now is really online. Not all of it. So these stores, they still exist because I think they do offer something face-to-face -face that online communication can't. But it's made it harder, harder for them to stay alive when they're competing against not only Amazon, but very specialized retailers um, who are selling all kinds of you know, radical products online through the internet. So, basically, my final take on these businesses is that they didn't create systematic change. They didn't revolutionize the way business is done in America. But they did achieve some modest change. What they did was they showed there was a range of possibilities for businesses. They showed people that not all businesses have to be, I would say capitalistic in a cutthroat fashion that not all businesses can or have to prioritize profit but that many of them can balance profit or even kind of submerge profit as a secondary or tertiary priority underneath the community engagement and political engagement and I think what these businesses also did again before the internet this is really important is they got a lot of messages out they got messages out about the black power movement 
they got messages out about feminism. So in our class today, we were just talking about second wave feminism and our bodies ourselves, right? Which is like one of the all-time best-selling health books of really in the United States, I think. It's in its ninth edition now. And um, it grew out of this tiny women's collective in Boston, maybe nine or ten people. And it's gone on to be this global bestseller in 20 different languages. And that was an activist business. They didn't say we are a business when they started. They said we're a women's health collective. But it became pretty clear pretty soon that it was a business, a very different one. So these businesses had impact. They didn't create an earthquake in the way Americans did business, but they popularized movements, and they also popularized different ways of doing business. And so that's kind of uh, what I'll wrap up with and say. Any questions, discussion, I, I always enjoy that, honestly, more than just talking. So would uh, love to jump into the Q&A. So thank you. <laughs> I already saw a question. Rita? I have a question with a question that goes with that question. Sounds okay. like three questions. Okay. I, I found it interesting that in the 80s, 30% of all business owners were women, and that many of these women were, did not identify as feminists. However, they benefited from that. Did you find in your research that more women joined the feminist movement because mm -hmm. of how they benefited? And my second question is how many of their businesses um, identified as safe spaces? Uh-huh. Those are both really good questions. So one of the, um, for me, one, one that was really eye-opening, um, one of the major, major changes, I think, in American business that I didn't predict or didn't know I would find out about if you look at the stats for all the businesses in America around 1972, 8% are owned by women, 8. That was the first year the federal government actually did a census on trying to figure out who owned, like men and women, who owns businesses. And that number hit 30% in the 80s, and I think today it's almost like 48, 47%. And that is a huge 8 to 47%. And that you don't hear a lot about that. I mean, I don't. we can put aside the question of what business ownership means in a larger sense of equality, whether it's a vehicle for equality or not, but that's a, just a like sea change. And so I think what I was trying to say there, I hope I got the question right, is that most women who were opening businesses in the 80s, they weren't part of the feminist movement in like a explicit way, but they really benefited from women's bookstores and women's health clinics who had kind of popularized the idea that women could be business owners. Like a lot of the early feminists who owned businesses in interviews that I did with them or just in looking at the sources, they said, I wanted to do this also because it's another thing that society said only men can do. So, um, and then I think some of them actually did kind of come into the feminist movement, but... Um, now, the question of whether they identified as safe spaces, that's a really good question. And I think that term really came out of, like, the anti-domestic violence, anti-sexual assault movement, like, kind of sub-movement of the feminist movement going back at least to the 80s, probably the 70s. But I think it took a long time for that phrase to catch on. And so um, there's another book that just came out recently by a scholar named Kristen Hogan about strictly about feminist bookstores, and it talks a lot more about that. So I can't answer the exact date, but at least by the 90s, maybe the 80s, some of those women's bookstores are saying, yes, we are safe spaces in like an explicit sense, as opposed to free spaces, like they said before, or just as opposed to kind of the general concept of being a haven. Um, I think all the examples you gave and all of them that I can really think of um, come from the progressive side of the social or political landscape. Uh, did you find many comparable examples on the other end of the political right. uh, side? That's a good question, and I didn't. I almost feel like that's a that should be someone else's book. But so. Um, Yes. So like in a kind of big sense, for example, uh, historian Bethany Morton at Dartmouth, she wrote a, a book about 10 years ago about Walmart and the role in which basically that 
evangelical Christianity played at Walmart and a number of other businesses like Chick-fil-A, which don't, well, Chick-fil-A is very explicit, but Walmart does not explicitly identify as a Christian business today or conservative one. That's where its roots are. But more explicitly than that, there's been a little bit of stuff written about Christian and evangelical bookstores and bookshops. And there's been a little bit, but not much, written about, for example, like John Birch Society. And John Birch Society, you know, very, very, very far right group that uh, you don't hear a lot about anymore, but was really big in the 50s and 60s. They had a whole, I don't want to say chain, they had a whole network of bookstores that were kind of like the right wing equivalent of communist bookstores. And it was coordinated and it was kind of centrally networked and um, they had party members running the stores. So, you know, one thing about my book is that I chose four very specific examples Black-owned bookstores, feminist businesses, organic food stores. Um, why am I already forgetting what the fourth one is? <laughs> and, uh, of course, head shops, yes, which is in the title. Uh, that happens every once in a while. But um, I reference a whole bunch of other businesses, and I think there could be whole books written on those. But, like, you know, Chicano movement businesses, Asian movement businesses, um, Union businesses like uh, Chavez and like United Farm Workers started a gas station out in California. Uh, communist and socialist businesses, um, LGBT businesses, which kind of broke down more into like gay men's businesses and also uh, lesbian feminist businesses, which I do talk about, but I didn't really talk about like gay liberation bookstores. So there's this whole universe that I couldn't even fit into the book. And I feel like there's a future in people writing about those. But it's a good question about conservative businesses. Yeah. Andy. Uh, you mentioned communist bookstores a minute ago. How do you put those in the context of these, mm-hmm. uh, these other kinds of businesses you were mentioning? Because you mentioned that those were, those had been around, and how, do the, how, do those, how does that kind of, the sort of models that those were run on, if you know much about that, how do those relate to these kinds of businesses? Right, so I think when Hoover was writing about black-owned businesses, or excuse me, black-owned bookstores in his memo in 1968 that I write about in the article, his mind was wrapped up in things like communist bookstores, which most of them, it was like the Communist Party of the United States of America. When it really peaked in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s, had a coordinated network, like the John Birch Network. So it, it was a national party with regional and local chapters and the local chapters were supposed to own bookstores, operate them, and the bookstores were supposed to stock books that were published by international publishers, which was like the New York communist publisher, and also, you know, officially tasked by the common turn to import stuff um, and translate stuff from, uh, from the Soviet Union. So on the one hand, they were very political businesses that wanted to disseminate certain political ideals and they were used as organizing vehicles and they were in a sense I guess almost like safe spaces and that supposed to be a public place where you could talk about radical politics but it was much more of a network it was much more coordinated and it was much more top down I think and that's what Hoover thought these black owned bookstores were they were not that they were individually owned a few of them had direct connections to Panthers or direct connections to certain groups but it was more of like an individual phenomenon popping up. It wasn't a coordinated network. Yeah. Uh, someone had their hand. Yeah. Um, do you feel like any of these kinds of stores or spaces have moved on to the internet? Yeah, they have. So definitely these kinds of businesses have. Like, um, there's definitely a lot of like internet only feminist businesses or internet only black booksellers. But then even some of the specific ones, um, most of them from the 60s and 70s are no longer with us, so to speak. But some of them survived 40, 50 years. So if you go to Oakland, Marcus Books, founded in 1965 or something, is still there in a second incarnation. And they have, you know, they're selling books online. Um, So I think it's more common that like future generations of these businesses that came up in the 80s, 90s, and especially in the last 15 years have kind of 
shifted to the internet, I think, as a way to survive, really, because even ones that have a storefront, very few can only exist strictly as a storefront. Are they also providing kind of the space that was provided for by the store, or have they shifted more to just kind of the selling model? Yeah, I, that's a good question. You know, I think it depends, but I think it's more common... It's more common to see, like... Well, I, don't, I think it really depends. So, for example, like Red Emma's, like, they obviously are very much focused on the physical space, having lots of book talks, having all kinds of events all the time. And their online presence is, like, fairly limited. If I'm... <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, they, they, like, list some books online, but they don't... I don't believe you can buy books online. So, yeah, I think what's... It's it's kind of a real mixed up world. Like you know, some people start online businesses and then they finally start a storefront. I think that is one of the big advantages of an online business, like a political business. You need much less capital, much much less capital. If you just want to sell like a hundred different like anarchist books online and like keep them in a closet in your room, you can start that way and it can be like your five ten hour a week side job, little yeah anarchist side hustle or whatever. That doesn't. It, but you. Even looking back, though, now I'm thinking, there were people who started that way pre-internet also. There are a lot of people who started selling books. It was a book cart, right? It was a black-oriented book cart. Or um, women who were making, like, feminist-themed T-shirts or jewelry sell them at a NOW conference, sell them at, like, you know, consciousness-raising groups, sell them um, at women's colleges, and then start a storefront. So, yeah, it's hard to say what the pattern would be today, but it's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to work at, in stacks and shelving with the Ethnography Library. I would um, one of my duties would be to process donations that we get. One time we had this huge donation of very in very bad condition books from a communist bookstore, mm-hmm. and I, from looking at it, led me to believe it was a black-owned communist bookstore. It had a lot of stuff about Mugabe, mm-hmm. dated to around the '80s. During the '80s, especially years after um, J. Edgar Hoover. Do these communist bookstores have anything to fear from the federal government? I mean, mm. did they? How did they? Were, was communism still considered that much of a threat that they'd uh, sur- put surveillance on these bookstores? That's a very good question. You know, I'll just say anecdotally, not to keep bringing up Red Emma's, but since they're in the neighborhood, from what I understand, they were involved in '03 and '04 and a lot of uh, anti-war organizing around like the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. And you can go online and they have stories about how this one guy who was coming to their meetings a lot kind of stopped showing up and they ended up figuring out that he was a either Baltimore police officer or I think actually maybe... Yeah. Yeah, the Red Squads. So I think less. I think a lot less, but I think we're surveillance of like political radicals hasn't gone away, and sometimes they pop up at businesses. Were bookstores subject to the Patriot Act? That was a big thing with libraries in the early 2000s. Right, you mean libraries who agreed or refused to show patrons' records, right? Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. that. Um, that's a very good question. I, I don't know. Um, I've actually never thought about that. You, uh, you may have stumped me. Uh, but I, I would not be surprised. My guess is that, yes, bookstores were subject to that. And did they have as much to worry in the 80s and 90s and 2000s as they did in the 60s? No. But did they have some concerns? Yeah. And they're, I think especially in the 2000s and... Who knows what's going on now, but around the Iraq war, I think there was a kind of resurgence of surveillance of activists in a way that became very um, apparent to activists across the country. Yeah. Um, did, did, uh, are you aware of the 31st Street Bookstore? You know that was uh, one of my favorite things about that place. So I walked into the ladies' room, and it had, um, you know, the books, the... Uh, Modest ripper things. Like they had a lot of ads for those things because they were a bookstore. They got all kinds of stuff in the mail, and they pasted it all over the walls of the ladies' room. I've been there 
laughing my head off, and I came out and I said, you heard, did you hear me laughing? I'm laughing at your decoration. And another one is the Women's Industrial uh, something. Exchange. Exchange. On, right. on Charles Street. That was started after the Civil War for the women who were widows, particularly, I think, to have um, a place to sell their handmade goods, mostly handmade goods at that time. Yeah, so I don't write about either of those in the book, but in that article I've been working on for this other book, talk about 31st Street, which people probably know that's where Normals is now. And that was a feminist and children's bookstore, I think, from about 75 to 95. And was part of that whole Waverly scene, which, and Charles Village, which was not only, you know, that bookstore, but it was... Um, co-ops like the Waverly co-op that Mark mentioned Sam Belly's co-op but also the health clinic around the corner and then different like kind of like group houses uh, the Ida Brayman house the John Brown house Diana Press that I mentioned on 25th street uh, women it was called women a journal of liberation it was the I think most people say the very first nationally distributed second wave feminist newspaper and it was yeah and that I mean those that was a real hive yeah, of activity. Yeah. And there, I saw a lot of them are still still around, and Waverly still around, and Able. But um, yeah, you mentioned also. What did you mention after Thirty First Street? Um, well, the women's industrial. Right. Yeah, that that's an interesting business to me that I'd always like to know about more. And like, I only yeah. I moved here very shortly after it closed, right? But I think. Um, and they reopened again? And they don't have yeah. the lunch. They took industrial out of the name. They don't serve the lunch and dinner. Mm-hmm. They took industrial out of the name. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I used to go, go up there for lunch when I was on jury duty because it's in the program. Yeah. But, it, but it's like memory lane with your whole list of things. I mean, even <laughs> things I didn't know about or didn't participate in, I knew about, well, I knew about most of them, except the ones in Holland's. I didn't know. That was pretty short-lived. Like, maybe that story lasted two years, to be honest. But, you know, I got good pictures, and it was, like, funded by the war on poverty, so I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. Nicole. Um, so how do you reframe this in, like, the neoliberal terms, where we have, like, public being usurped by being, everything public has to be a private business? How do you envision, how does that function in your Yeah, good and tough question. Um, <laughs> You know, I think neoliberalism is a term that kind of started in academic circles and now I think is much more out in the public. But yeah, the way I define it is, like you said, um, public officials and public agencies more and more saying, we're going to collaborate with businesses and basically capitalists can do a lot of handle a lot of the social goods and social functions and public functions that we used to handle. Like this shift from the public to the private, from the social to the more proprietary. And I think you're right to ask, like, does this somehow connect with that? And, you know, within these movements, these businesses, they were very controversial, especially like in the women's movement. There were big debates about can a business actually embody the goals of a democratic like egalitarian movement and I think um, I think where most people in the movements ended up falling is saying okay we will support businesses but only businesses that deprioritize profit in a way that makes them like you know they shouldn't be accumulating capital I guess that's the thing. One of the things I came up in the book is that there are businesses and then there are capitalists. In our country, most businesses are capitalists. But there's a whole history of like businesses in a whole range of communist countries, in Maoist China and Soviet Union and East Germany. And there are businesses that go back thousands of years, right, that kind of precede the rise of modern capitalism. So kind of the concept I'm trying to say is like there's a Venn diagram and the vast majority of businesses overlap with capitalism. The ideal that these businesses are trying to strike, many of them, is to be either minimally capitalist or non-capitalist. So in some ways, I think many of them were not at all connected to neoliberalism. On the other hand, I think that some of these businesses like Whole Foods really did kind of 
anticipate this neoliberal wave. I mean, John Mackey, the founder, is one of these people who denounces labor unions, has barred his workers from belonging to unions. Only one store is ever unionized, and it only lasted for a few years. He said that the Affordable Care Act was like fascism. I mean, that was a direct quote, like fascism. So I think there are some seeds in some of these businesses. Some of these businesses planted seeds of libertarianism and anti-government sentiment. Not most of them, but ones like Whole Foods did, and I think they kind of connect with neoliberalism later on. It's a very rambling question, and I need to get or a rambling answer that I need to get better at. But um, I think there was a libertarian streak in some, but not most of these businesses that connected with neoliberalism. That's what I was trying to say. That would have been my topic sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So benefit corporations are a new form of business incorporation. Maryland was the first state to do it, uh, passed the legislature in 2010. And now maybe something like 30 states across the country have put it on the books. Basically, you know. Unlike an LLC, there's a lot of debates in like business circles and among like business scholars. Like, is it actually true that a corporation has a duty to its shareholders above all else? Right. That 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 argument has been used to do some very um, ugly things to workers and to the environment. And there's like an ongoing legal debate among legal scholars about like what responsibilities does a corporation have. What the benefit corporation does is just say, okay, we're going to put this idea of sole profit as a responsibility to the side. A benefit corporation incorporates and says, we're going to basically not only have a financial responsibility, but we're going to clearly like delineate environmental responsibilities. We're going to clearly delineate responsibilities to our workers and to our local community and write them up in the founding document and then have like third-party external audits every year, basically. So, yeah, I do think they're very much connected to this, and I write about them in the conclusion, and I don't know about how many benefit corporations are like aware of this history, but I definitely think they're part of the family tree, and I think it's like social enterprises, benefit corporations, and then also the kind of co-opters. They're all kind of part of this big family tree, um, and kind of they're kind of cousins in a sense. They're going in different directions. But yeah, I, I definitely think it's connected. Yeah. Where do you see these, these, these kinds of businesses? Well, does Baltimore still hold a place for these kinds of businesses? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I can't see into the future, but I do think Baltimore is a good place for these businesses now, especially because it's not a cheap place, but it's a lot cheaper than the other cities on the East Coast, right? And I think that is part of the reason why a place like Red Emos can stay in business um, and has stayed in business now for 15-plus years, I think. I mean, that's it's really exceptional. I mean... People can say what they will about that business, but the fact that it's open, that it's open six days a week, that it's open late, that it's just constant events. It's food, coffee. It's worker-owned. It's very political. A lot of cities don't have a single business like that on that scale. I would say Everyone's Place is another interesting one on North Avenue near Penn and North. Um, and that's a couple, uh, Nati Nataki, and I'm forgetting his wife's name, but they've owned that business since like the mid-'80s, and that's like a, a black-focused uh, bookstore, but I think it's hard. 
I think it is hard and it may get harder. But there is little, there, there's been a lot of efforts popping up in Baltimore over the years. A lot of them don't last. But one of the things I kind of really tried to push hard in this book was to say, a business that lasts 10 years, even if it eventually dies, like financially, in many ways, that's like an undeniable success in my book. That to have an institution that actually goes for 10 years, 10 years is a long time. Even two or three years. Like, we have a very narrow and I think in some ways misinformed sense of how we think about business success in this country. But if an institution delivers products, goods, community services, disseminates political ideals, even just for a few years, that to me is a form of business success. It's not one that like most people teaching in a business school would agree with. But I think that's part of the problem is that economists and business scholars have really, really kind of excessively dominated our culture's understanding of what a business can and should be. So that maybe sounds like a dodge to your question, but I think uh, part of this determining what the future is is to say there's different metrics of success. Businesses are going to come and go, but we already have successes currently now. Right. Well, I think you're right. And I think what happened also late 60s and 70s is a lot of these businesses really kind of popped up during the Nixon era. Like, not as a retreat from electoral politics, but a concession that there had to be local on the ground institutions that operated in spite of like the national political climate. Right, And so these businesses are going to keep operating despite Trump, despite whoever wins the House this fall. And in many ways, I think they kind of get some momentum from very conservative political climates because they offer an alternative that maybe people aren't getting from the higher-up institutions. That was a lot of questions. Thank you. Um, I think if anyone wants to, there's books over there, which I will gladly sign. And, um, yeah, it's always nice to support local institutions. And uh, Ivy Bookshop is doing the sales. And uh, if you can't buy a book, that's also okay. I think probably people know the Ivy Bookshop. Also know they have a newer location that opened up in Charles Village um, at the coffee shop, whose name I'm forgetting, on 33rd Street. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're a good institution that the library is partnering with. So uh, yeah, thank you all for coming. Thanks for the great questions. I appreciate it. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.